And uh, we've been working our way through Mark. Now, you, you may not realize this, and particularly if it's your first time, you definitely won't realize this. This is the end of a little series, but next week we're carrying on with the next bit of Mark. But what I mean is, this is the end of a chunk in Mark. So we've been looking basically from 8.31 through to the end of chapter 10. It's kind of a chunk. Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. In chapter 11, he rides into Jerusalem. So it's kind of like the start of a new thing next week. So we're going to do the Palm Sunday next Sunday. So bring your palm branches. And uh, that's, that's next Sunday. So this is the end of this chunk. And over, again, over and over again, we've used this phrase, not so with you. Jesus is teaching his disciples that if they're going to follow him, they're going to have to live differently to the world. Not so with you. The world does it this way, but not so with you. And in our passage today, we get to that phrase. And this is why we called the series that. So if you've been wondering for the last few weeks, why did they ever call it that? This is why. We're going to reach it today. So I'd love you to follow along. And um, we're going to then try and unpack this uh, a little bit together. I'm going to read from uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 32, right the way through to the end of Mark chapter 10. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Now, this is, just to fill you in, this is the third time he's done this. This chunk of Mark, this little bit we've been looking at, three times Jesus does this. Verse 33, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Did you spot it? (laughs) Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. 
the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Why don't we pray together and ask that God would help us uh, to understand this, this word. Father, even just reading these stories, there is such a beauty in Jesus. But we want to understand that more. We want to hear your voice. We want your spirit to awaken our souls with praise and worship this afternoon. We want to be moved by this truth and changed by this truth and rebuked and corrected and sent out to live this truth. Father, please show us, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen. Okay, this is how uh, this talk is going to work. It goes like this. There's one question and there's two answers. We're going to think about the question first and then we're going to think about each of the two answers. One question, two answers. The question is the same. Did you spot it? Jesus asks the same question twice in our bit we just read. Firstly to James and John, he says to them, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? And then again, in verse 51, he says, what do you want me to do for you? There's one question. But we're going to see two very different answers to that question. But here's where we're heading right this afternoon. I want you to imagine, I want you to picture, in fact, I don't want you just to imagine it. I want you to know, this afternoon, Jesus says to you, what do you want me to do for you? What is it you want? And as we think about that question, it is a phenomenal question for Jesus to ask. Isn't it? Because what do you want me to do for you? That is the question that a servant asks. That's a servant's question. Hello, what do you want me to do for you? That's a Aladdin and the genie in the lamp question. You rub the lamp, poof, the genie appears. The genie says, what do you want me to do for you? It's a servant's question. The, the genie in the lamp has shackles around his hands and his feet because he's a slave. Here's Jesus saying, what do you want me to do for you? And it kind of probably makes us feel a little bit awkward. It's like, if someone really important, if we went to the queen and she said, what do you want me to do for you? Like, oh, no, you don't ask me that. I should be serving you. I, just, I, 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 I should serve you. Here's, here's the staggering thing that question reveals. Jesus came to serve you. We think that it's all about Jesus, that we serve Jesus. It's about what we do for Jesus. It's about us serving him. We need to serve him. We need to serve Jesus. Actually, first... You need to let him serve you. You need to get to grips with what it means that Jesus came to serve you. That is staggering. But what does that mean? I mean, we surely were not talking about genie in the lamp that Jesus goes, what do you want me to do for you? What does it mean that Jesus came to serve? That's what we need to work out. Let's have a look down. Let's get it clear, right? Let's start with our passage, verse 32. They're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading. Look at the way this is written. With Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. Again, those who followed were afraid. Can you picture it? 
You've got, to, you've got to see this, okay? We know from this section in Mark, if you've been here for the last few weeks, over and over, Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. I'm going to die, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be flogged and spat on, and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die. And you've got to see what Mark is telling us. They're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus is leading the way. He's out front. Here is a picture of True courage, true heroism. Here is a picture of true strength as Jesus leads the way. And all these kind of people behind him are like, what are we doing? I don't know. We don't like this. I don't like this. But Jesus, his head is up, his eyes are fixed, and he's striding to his death. He knows what he's doing. He's, you've got to get, we've got to get out of our heads these naff, Weak, wimpy pictures of Jesus, where he's kind of like all like nah, nothingy, and he's got no nothing. He's a. F- <laughs> there is something so strong, and so courageous and brave. You will not find, I don't think, in all of history, a braver picture than Jesus leading the way to the cross with his eyes fixed on his death. That should move you this afternoon. (laughs) What a picture. And he knows what's going to happen. And again and again, three times in this section, he makes sure his disciples know. He takes them aside. We're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death. They will hand him over to Gentiles who mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. He knows what's going to happen. Now, we might say that's just a bit weird. Why? Why is he going to a cross to die? Here's the thing, right? Remember, he wants to ask this question, what do you want me to do for you? He's come to serve. He's come to ask the servant's question. That's why he's going to a cross to die. Because his death is how he serves us. Okay, we might think, but that's a bit weird. I don't get it. Okay, well, let's keep reading. We're going to skip a bit, come back to it in a second. Skip down to verse 45. Here is Jesus setting out why he's going to die. He is so clear in his head about what he's doing. There's no messing around. There's no faffing around with Jesus. He knows exactly what he's come to do. Look, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the very words of Jesus, from his lips, he says, I have not come to get a pile of people to serve me. I've come to serve a pile of people. This is so different, isn't it, to how often we view Jesus? Primarily, firstly, he takes the initiative to serve you. He takes the initiative to serve by giving his life. And then he explains why. Because his life is going to be a ransom. As he dies, he is going to pay a ransom that sets people free. Now, this verse 45, let me just do a little bit of background for you, okay? Because what Jesus does in verse 45 would have blown the minds of his initial readers and hearers. Because Jesus takes two things which are both in the Old Testament... One over here and one over here. And then he glues them together. He like welds these two things, which up until this point, people would have gone, 
Don't get how those two things can both be true. And he welds them together. So, firstly, there's the Son of Man stuff. He talks about himself as the Son of Man. Why does he call himself that? What a weird name. Why does Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? Well, it's, it's, it's a code name, right? I used, to, uh, I used to be in a gang at school. It was, it was proper. There were two of us. Uh, me and Stephen Gower. And we, had, we, were, we thought it was really good. And we had code names, uh, which kind of represented something of who we were. Mine was Falcon Fighter. I, at the time, I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. His was Eagle Eyes, which I thought was a bit naff. But mine, I thought, was just terrific. Now, Falcon Fighter, right, is a code name that was supposed to... It didn't really work because I wasn't very good at flying or fighting. I ran away most of the time from fights, so that wasn't any good. But it was supposed to represent something. Okay, Son of Man, come back, come back. Son of Man, right, Son of Man is a code name that everybody who heard Jesus speak would have gone, oh, well, we know what he's talking about. Because back a few hundred years before, there'd been a man called Daniel... And Daniel had seen a vision. Now, don't worry about turning to it. I just, in some ways, I want you to kind of, maybe it helps you to concentrate, to close your eyes, to try and get a sense of this, right? Daniel has a vision of a figure, and it's unlike anything you've ever heard. Daniel says this, In my vision at night, I looked. There before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, And was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You want to know what son of man means? Son of man means all power, all glory, all authority. This figure. There's someone coming, Daniel saw. Oh, Daniel... He must have been so annoyed. He must have been so frustrated. They must have been like, who is it? Because he didn't live to see Jesus. He was before Jesus. And yet he got this snapshot, this glimpse into the future of who was coming. So powerful, so glorious, so beautiful, so wonderful. All the nations worship him. So that's that bit there. But then you get passages like this. Okay, So hold that glory, glory, glory thing. Then you get stuff like this. Uh, I'm going to read you some other words. Um, This is from Isaiah 53. Listen to this. He was despised and rejected. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Can't you see? So here you are, right? Isaiah and Daniel meet up one day. They lived at different times, so they never would have done. But imagine they did. 
Daniel goes, isn't it exciting? Isn't it exciting that there's this really powerful, all-glorious son of man coming? And as I would have gone, ah, more of a suffering, rejected, dying thing. How do those two things go together? How do you hold those two things together? And suddenly, Mark 10, 45, can't you feel it? Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Suddenly you realize, that's the plan. The plan is that the all-glorious, all-powerful Son of God, Son of Man, the one who's worthy of all praise and worship, is the very one who will go and die to give his life. And he gives his life as a ransom. Now, a ransom is a pretty simple idea. You pay something to buy something back. You pay money to set something free. And Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. For people, for others. Well, who are they? Well, they are the people, right? So the Bible says, okay, imagine this, okay? Imagine every time I did something wrong, uh, I had a stone and I threw it on a pile, okay? Imagine your pile of stones, your pile of rocks. There it is. And every time another one gets chucked on, I wonder how big your pile will be. Now, add to that, let's add on uh, every time you think something wrong as well. Another rock gets chucked on the pile. And, and every time you don't do something good that you should have done, another rock gets chucked on the pile. I don't know about you, but my pile is pretty, pretty big. In fact, it's like a mountain. There's a, there's a mountain here, and this mountain kind of towers over me, looms over me, and it speaks, it speaks condemnation over me. It speaks guilty. You're guilty. And I, I, you know, I, I try and dress it up. I try and hide it. I try and put it on a front. I try and make out I'm a nice person and hide the, don't look at the mountain. And yet it's there, this mountain of stuff I've done wrong. It's like a weight or a, a debt that I owe to God, a, a It's massive. And I can't pay. I can't sort it out. I can't get rid of it. I can't deal with it. But then Jesus comes. And we just read from Isaiah 53 that my sin, my mountain of sin, was placed on him. And he was crushed by it. That's why he's going to die. My mountain of sin, the only way for that to be dealt with is for him to take it upon himself, to carry that load. And as he stretches out his arms on the cross, he knows he's going to die. He says, I've come to serve. I've come to serve. I've come to give my life. And the weight crushes him. He pays the ransom. And I'm free. Because my debt is gone. My debt is paid. There's nothing left. There's, I can now be honest. I can say, come look. Come look. at. There's nothing there. I don't have to hide anymore. 
Jesus came to serve. And he came to pay the ransom, to take the weight of my sin. He came to redeem, to buy us out of that slavery. That's why he came. So that's the question, all right? Jesus comes and he says, what do you want me to do for you? I've come to serve you. I've come to die on a cross, to carry the ransom, to pay the ransom, to carry the weight, and to set you free. That's what I've come to do. I've come to be a servant. What do you want me to do for you? It is a terrific question. But the problem is we can get the answer to that question wrong. Do you know, I, um, when I was about 10 years old, I was asked this, exactly this question by a very, very, very rich man. He was, a, he was a Jordanian rich man, and his daughter lodged with us when she was a student. And he'd come over every now and again to see her. And he said to me and my two brothers, next time I come back, I will bring you whatever you want. What do you want? Now, here's the issue, right? I was fairly well brought up and a fairly sensitive child. So I said, I promise this is true. I said, I'd, I'd just like a few, a few sweets. That would be, that'd be lovely. Thank you. <laughs> My little brother, he went on a remote-controlled car. And uh, so this guy said, fine. He came back. He gave me my sweets. And he gave my brother the biggest, most unbelievably cool remote control car you've ever seen in your life. I learned a lesson that day. So I got, I got the answer wrong. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting that the answer when Jesus asked us the question is a remote control car. It was just... Anyway, let's get to this. Right. So Jesus says, Watch it. we've got it clear now, okay? He came to serve. He came to serve. He came to serve. Now look at James and John, verse 35. Verse 35. Jesus just been saying to them, I'm going to die on a cross. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Do you think there was any sense in them that that might be a vaguely inappropriate thing to say to the Son of Man, the King of Kings, the Lord Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth? I think if I'd been Jesus, I'd have said, who do you think you are? But he doesn't. He's so gracious, isn't he? What do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. We want the top spots, Jesus. He's been talking about going to Jerusalem. He's been talking about, they kind of have got the idea he's a king. They've seen some amazing miracles. They've seen him raise the dead and heal the sick, feed 5,000, calm a storm. They've seen him do all this stuff. They're pretty stoked about this man, Jesus. They're like, this is cool. Don't get the dying thing. That's a bit weird. We'll ignore that. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be king. He's bringing his kingdom. That's what's going on in their heads. We need to get our places booked. We want the top spots. And Jesus is so gracious. Look, he says, Can't you, you kind of have to imagine Jesus here. 
Can you imagine the pain there must have been in Jesus' heart as he looks at these guys? He loves them so much and they still don't get it. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they say, yeah, I think so. Yep, I think that's, can you imagine a look at each other? Yeah. Yep, we're up for that. Why? Because they're thinking he's got a glorious kingdom. The cup he's going to drink is the cup of glory, right? The baptism he's going to be baptized with is a baptism of glory when he enters glory and everyone's like, whoa! And they're like, yeah, we can handle that. We'll be right there, Jesus. But of course, Jesus isn't talking about a cup of glory and a baptism of glory. He's talking about his cross. He's talking about that moment when he will carry. One of the pictures the Bible uses is of a cup when he would drink the cup of God's anger at sin. He says, that's what I'm going to drink. Can you drink that? The agony and the pain and the suffering. As the, as the sin of the world is heaped upon Jesus. Can you drink that, Jesus says? The baptism he talks about is the baptism of going under God's judgment, going under the the water, the flood waters of God's right anger at sin. He says, can you do that? They haven't got a clue what they're talking about. And then Jesus says, yeah, you will drink the cup I drink. Now, he's not saying you will drink the cup of wrath. He's saying you are going to actually follow me. You are going to drink the cup of suffering. In the same way that he says, take up your cross and follow me. He doesn't mean you're going to die on a cross for the sins of the world. It's the same here. He doesn't mean you're going to drink the cup of the sins of the world, but he means you are going to follow that path. You are going to walk the road of the cross. Do you know which of the 12, well, which of the 11, actually, not counting Judas, which of the 11 disciples died first? James did. James was murdered not many years after Jesus by Herod. John would spend his life, much of his life in his old age, on an island, exiled in suffering. They are going to suffer. But Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. You want the places of glory. There is one other place in Mark's gospel where this idea of right and left is used. I think Mark deliberately, when he goes to, when he talks about Jesus dying on the cross, he says, and next to him was crucified two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. That's what it looks like in my kingdom. That's what, it, that's what it costs. Jesus said, that's the road I'm walking. And then the ten hear about it, look at it, and they're indignant. Why are they indignant? I don't think it's because they're like, oh, James and John, how could you? That's a terrible way to behave. I think they're indignant because they're like, <gasps> why don't we think of that? What if they get a place that's better than us? So Jesus calls them all together. It's like getting his little children together. Come on, children, let's have a little chat about this. Come and talk to Daddy. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, Jesus says. Stop acting like the world. Stop acting like everybody else. Everybody is in this mad scramble for the top place. I used to love going to theme parks. 
I love roller coasters. I love all that stuff. I, last time I went to a theme park, I spent all day there. I think I had four rides because we were queuing. And as far as I can see, in a queue, you spend most of your time trying to work out how you can get a little bit further up. And then when you're queuing at a theme park, you get those evil people who come with their little thing around their neck. <laughs> ah, we've got a queue box. We go to the front of the queue because we paid extra money. And it's just so annoying. It just I got so wound up last time I went. So I've given up on that. Uh, but it's true in true in my queue. We, we want and it's so stressful. It's like in a supermarket when you're queuing a supermarket. You, you just, it's so stressful when you're looking at the other queues and the one that might be moving faster than yours. And then someone opens a till and someone behind you goes around in front of you like, no, but I was in. No. <laughs> the thought that someone gets in front of you is so absolutely abhorrent to us. That's what our hearts are like all the time. I want to push myself forward. I want to do whatever I can to just make myself a little bit ahead of others. And we've all got our ways of pushing ourselves forward. Some of us are intelligent in this room. We'll use our intelligence. We'll use our brilliant brains to to make a name for ourselves, to get glory, to grab some glory for ourselves, to try and push ourselves forward. Some of us aren't intelligent. (laughs) <laughs> but we've got other things some of us are strong we'll use our physical strength to push ourselves forward some of us are beautiful we'll use our beauty to push ourselves forward some of us are funny we'll use that whatever it is we'll do anything we can to try and push ourselves forward and Jesus says not so with you you need to learn what it is to serve remember he is the son of man who came to serve. So this is what Jesus says to anyone who wants to be at the front of the queue. You know what Jesus says, don't you? Get to the back. Go to the very back of the queue. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. True greatness is not found at the front of the queue. You get to the front of the queue and actually what you discover is nothing. How many people over the years could testify to that? And the really weird thing is that greatness is found at the back. Greatness is found in, in letting go of my own obsession and ambition and going to the very back of the queue, taking the last place. And can I tell you, and you, you will know this is true. That is the only place where freedom is found. There is genuine freedom at the back of the queue. You try it in the supermarket. I promise you. If you're the sort of person who gets stressed in traffic jams or, or, or in um, thingies, queues, or in a theme park, you try this. You try letting people go in front of you. Do you, go, do you want to go in front of me? There's such freedom. Because you're not stressed anymore about wanting to be first. I've got to be first. I've got to be first. Actually, no, no, hang on a second. Why don't, do you want to go in front And if you could live your life genuinely saying, I want to serve others. I want to see others go ahead of me. I want to see others better than me. I want to see other churches in London more successful than Globe Church. I want to see other preachers who are more used by God than me. Sorry, that's a personal application. I want to see other people 
who achieve more in their careers than I do. I want to see other people who are more beautiful than I am. That's where freedom's found. Because then when someone who's more beautiful than I am, which rarely happens, but when someone who's more beautiful than I am approaches me, I can say, praise God that you're more beautiful than I am. Other, instead of saying, oh, I think they might be... This is a bad example. I should have picked a different one. Praise God that you... No, I, otherwise they get so wound up, right? That they might be better than me. They might be more beautiful. You, you will know what this feels like. And here is Jesus teaching his disciples. When he comes and says, what do you want me to do for you? If all you want from Jesus is a bit of glory, if all you want from Jesus is to make a name for yourself, Jesus, please fix this. Please do this. Please make my life better. Please put me first. Please would you make that person less pretty. Please would you do something to their nose. Please would you do something. Please let me be first. If that's what our praying is, then Jesus says, not so with you. It's not how it works. Even the Son of Man, even Jesus, came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to pay your debt. How dare we now act as if we get to push ourselves forward? Well, we need to look at the second one because this, this really makes the point right. Have a look at what happens next. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Right, here is a man who is at absolutely the back of the queue. I mean, surely you can see that. He's blind. He's begging. He's sitting on the street. There's no social services. There's no care for him. There's no, he, all he has to rely on is other people's kindness. Now his name, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, there's a bit of disagreement about what Timaeus means, but there's a fairly strong chance that it, it means unclean. It means filth. This is son of filth, sitting by the roadside begging. You can't get more back of the queue than him. And here's Jesus leaving Jericho and he's shouting at the top of his voice. Can't you picture him? He doesn't even know where Jesus is. He's blind. He's shouting in the direction that he thinks Jesus might be. Calling out, son of David, have mercy on me. What do the crowd say? Just shut up. You're the back of the queue. There's a lot of people ahead of you. You just you stay where you are. And then come possibly my two favorite words in all of Mark's gospel. Look at verse 49. Jesus stopped. <laughs> That's phenomenal, right? He's the eternal son of God, the maker of heaven and earth, the almighty son of man who's set his face to go to Jerusalem to die for the sin of the world and some Blind beggar is calling out to him, and he stopped. He stopped the mission to save the universe for a blind beggar. He stops, and he calls to the man. And here is what I want you to know. If you feel like you're at the back of the queue, if you feel like you are worthless and useless and hopeless, you know, you've 
You feel like you've got nothing. You feel like Jesus would never be bothered with you. Let me tell you what Jesus says to the people at the back of the queue. He says, come to the front. To the people at the front, he says, you go to the back and learn how to serve. To the people at the back, he says, you come here, come here, come to the front. He calls the man. And so they say to him, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks. And he's got it right. Rabbi, I want to see. I'm not interested in glory. I'm not interested in becoming famous. I just want mercy. I just want to see. Just, I, I love this thing that the first thing that this man sees is Jesus smiling at him. Go. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sights and followed Jesus along the road. And I sort of want to say to you, this question, what do you want me to do for you? It is a staggering question of a servant king, the son of man who came to give his life as a ransom. There is a wrong way to respond. There's a way that's full of pride and myself and says, I want glory. But there's a right way to respond that is full of Jesus. Please have mercy on me. Jesus, will you show me kindness? I know I don't. I've got nothing, Jesus. I've got nothing to offer you. I, I, I'm not impressive. But would you show me mercy? And my guess is that there are people sitting in this room today who perhaps feel like you're at the back of the queue. And if you're not at the back, you feel like you're quite a long way down. And Jesus says, come up, come to the front. I want to heal you. I want to love you. I want to show you mercy. I want to open your eyes to see who I am. I want you to experience this wonderful forgiveness that I've come to bring. I'll pay your ransom. I'll pay it completely. That's why the money chuck, man chucks his money away. He doesn't need the money anymore. Jesus is going to pay his ransom. And so here is, here is Jesus, this beautiful king. Now my experience of the Christian life goes mostly like this. I try to push myself to the front. And Jesus says, go to the back of the queue. And often there are things that happen that really humble me and really break me and I feel really broken. And at the back of the queue, I'm there and I'm saying, Jesus, please have mercy on me. He says, hey, come to the front. And I come to the front and I experience the wonderful forgiveness and joy of Jesus again. And then I begin to get proud and arrogant and snatching after glory. He says, go to the back. <laughs> and I'm, I'm back at the back and he humbles me and, he, and I'm broken. And do you see, that's, 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 that's the Christian life. And so if that's you this afternoon, I don't know where you are on that queue, but I do know this. The Son of Man came to serve you and to give his life as a ransom for you. You don't have to carry the weight of your sin. And lots of us still carry it. Even if we've been Christians for years, we still have these stones that we don't really believe Jesus dealt with. He's forgiven them completely. Your debt is paid. The ransom is paid. There is nothing left to pay. And if you're not yet following Jesus, if you're here this afternoon and you're still thinking about all this stuff, you won't find anything like this anywhere else. A king who says, I will pay for all you've done. I'll pay it completely. Come follow me. Come follow me.
So we're going to respond to this together. I, I, I find this a very moving account in Mark's gospel, and we're going to respond to it together. Enjoy this truth. Some of us, we need to confess how we push ourselves forward. Some of us, we need to hear that gentle, come here, come here. And we need to come to him. And we're going to sing together. We're going to sing a couple of songs. We'll leave some time in between for you just to pray. Um, but let's, let's enjoy uh, all that he's done uh, for us. Um, we're going to do them in a different Can we do Jesus Paid It All first?